At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. They arrested me and they put me in jail and they called my pappy to throw my bail. And he said, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln. It's the five to go podcast here. Special Tuesday edition here at WSB Radio Studios, and you're hearing us, of course, on PRN, the Performance Racing Network's channel of podcasts. They've got a lot of great ones as well. I'm your host, Doug Fireball Turnbull, joining you from Midtown Atlanta on West Peachtree Street. Normally, we are joined in our production studio here by Eric Von Hessler, the weekday host of the Von Hessler Doctrine, 9 to 11 each day here on WSB, and of the podcast hour that he has every day from 11 to 12 on his Facebook live page, the Von Hessler Doctrine, but that is not the case today. He is under the weather and we wish him well, but we are joined because he is a beacon of consistency. He is a beacon of praise. He is a championship mechanic from Dawsonville, Georgia. Welcome on, Dan Elliott. I'm a beacon, but I'm a dim one. <laughs> no, you aren't either, man. <laughs> not dim, not uh, at all. How you doing today, buddy? Doing good. Uh, yeah, I hope uh, Eric gets the feeling better. hope it's not anything serious. hope he gets feeling better and... Uh, how about you, Dougie? How you doing? I'm doing really well, man. I've been trying to lay off the caffeine lately, but they had some coffee lying around here at the station, so I've got a few extra spark plugs hooked up today. I don't blame you. Go for it. <laughs> it is, man. It's a Tuesday jolt we need. We, we do hope Eric gets to feeling better, by the way, because tomorrow, if you're hearing this, uh, either late Tuesday or early Wednesday uh, at the 57th Fighter Group in the Brookhaven area, right next to Peachtree Cab Airport on Claremont Road near Peachtree Industrial. Uh, the third leg of the Eric Von Hessler Autumn Breakfast Tour is going to be in place from 9 to 11. And so if anybody in Atlanta is listening close by and wants to come and meet Eric Von Hessler and his gang of doctrinaires, as he calls them, the other people on the Von Hessler Doctrine, you can come out and meet them. Dan, you need to come and make a trip to one of these things. They'd like to meet you, too. Yeah, have some grits and gravy. That we hope. Yeah. And, and I don't know what the breakfast menu is going to be at 57th Fighter Group. I've never been there for breakfast or for any meal, which is kind of hard to believe since I fly on the I WSB have, Sky and, and they've got great food there, but I haven't been there for breakfast, but I've been there for dinner, and it is good. Okay, well, that's good to know. A lot of these places that Von Hessler's been doing these here in the Atlanta area uh, have made a special breakfast menu. They're not really breakfast places. So I, I don't know if that'll be the case to, or not, but make a make a hump day out of this and go down to the Von Hessler Doctrines deal. You can find all this info on WSBRadio.com and go to the 57th Fighter Group. Now, Dano, what are you working on in the background over there? It sounds like you're hot and heavy in the workshop getting something done. Yeah, I've got a trans that I've got torn apart. Uh, I've got a guy that uh, is had a little bit of issue with it, and we're straightening that thing out, but it's the normal day, and um, I'll lay the wrenches down and We'll be good to go. Oh, that's that's fine. I like the background noise. It's nat sound, as they call it in the radio world. So, yeah, keep it up, man. It sounds even better than when you were driving around last week. It's you know, sounds like real work. Real work. That's exactly <laughs> right. It's usually fingers going up and horns blowing. Oh Lord. Oh Lord. Yeah. Well, that's that is now. Is now, that you, now you got to talk about one thing for sure? <laughs> um, you know what this weekend is. I think I know what you're alluding to, but please act as if I don't. 
Moonshine Festival oh. in Dawsonville. That's going to be great. Now, what, what is your role there? Do you, do you, are you making a, an official public appearance, or are you just going to blend in with the crowd there with your mason jar? I'll make an official appearance, and um, Daniel and I will carry a couple of cars down there, and um, that's what it's all about. We enjoy the cars. Of course, there's crafts and just everything to do galore, but for me, it's the cars. The draw is the cars, obviously. And there's so many there, you just can't believe how many different varieties of cars, trucks. It's every year I'm amazed at what people bring and how much engineering, how much money goes into some of these cars and trucks. And do you know what kind of cars you and Dan Jr. are bringing? Um, Daniel will take his, he's got one of the kit Cobras, one of the Superformance kit Cobras. And Daniel and I did a project. It was his great grandfather's Chevrolet pickup truck. Oh man! And uh, we did a, you know, the six oh four. It's not cubic inch, but it's a throttle three numbers of the part number six oh four, like you run in the crate late models or the dirt crate Kleiss. They're a four. They're a three fifty cubic inch, but they're four hundred horse and four hundred foot pounds and. We did one of those engines and a, and a manual, a Tremec Trans in that pickup truck. And we've been working on it for a couple of months and finally got it running. And it's just a truck, but runs really good. And we enjoyed working on it together. Man, that sounds fun. And so do, do they have, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, folks, if you just look up Dawsonville Moonshine Festival, you should be able to find everything you need to know there. This goes on, anybody in the Atlanta area who's never been, it's on Highway 53, what, about five miles or so west of 400? That's where the if Dawsonville... You come to, if you come to Dawsonville, you're in it because <laughs> all roads that come into Dawsonville will be blocked and you're in it. So. That's good to know. We need to get that info up on our traffic page, wsbradio.com, yep, since yep. That'll, that'll be right um, on the edges. But Definitely, if you're not coming to this, you need to avoid the city, but um, please come in and enjoy and have a good time, because there'll be a lot to see and do. A lot, always, and my one of my favorite things in the whole state of Georgia to see, one of my favorite places to go, is the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame, which is in the Dawsonville City Hall right there on Highway 53 where the hub of this activity will be. That's where their big events are in the city. They've got a moonshine still attached to it. I'm sure that'll be busy coming up this, uh, is it Saturday and Sunday or just Saturday? It is Saturday and Sunday. So co- coming up this coming weekend here, October the 28th, thereabouts, that's where you need to go, go find out about that. Folks, if you don't know what all the ins and outs are, just go to D- Google Dawsonville Moonshine Festival and some info will come up. And if you go, you've got to, right, Dan, you've got to go to the Dawsonville Pool Room and see Gordon Perkle and all of the cool racing memorabilia and get a bully burger, right? Yeah, you need to run Gordon down because I don't know if he'll be at the pool room or if he'll be at the Hall of Fame or somewhere on the streets in between. Gordon is the uh, curator of the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame, and he's the guy, for those that are new to the Georgia racing scene or don't know, he's the one that sounds the siren every time a Georgia driver goes to victory lane. He's never Dougie, sounded now it. Now that's the siren. That's not the That's siren. true. Yeah, that's just like you mash the gas. There's a siren that he puts off there at the pool room, and so they've sounded it a few times for Chase Elliott's victories and polls. Never had that checkered flag in the Cup Series, and I'm sure coming up this weekend at Martinsville Speedway, that'll be an opportunity there for Chase Elliott, although that's where he made his Cup debut, and that's a tough place for young drivers. I want to talk about, uh, Dan, as we go five to go here, which if you're just listening the first time, we go deep on five different subjects in the racing world each and every week. 
We try not to talk about the exact same things that the other podcasts and TV shows, radio shows, Sirius, whatever, are talking about. If you want to hear some great racing podcasts, go no further than this PRN podcast channel if you're on GoPRN.com because Fast Talk, hosted by Doug Rice and the O'Reilly Pitt Reporters, hosted by Brett McMillan, are great to cover the stories in the racing world right then. And there are plenty of others as well, but those are two good places to start. We try to go a little alternative here, and sometimes we do intersect with what they're doing. So the first subject I want to tackle, Dan, We've been talking about young drivers a lot, but we need to talk about the elder statesman in the NASCAR uh, Monster Energy Cup Series field, and that is Matt Kenseth. Matt Kenseth is 45 years old, and the Wisconsin driver has had a storied career in the Cup Series that actually started, Dan, when he filled in for your brother. I believe it was at Dover in 1998, and he got a top 10 when uh, Bill was out. I think, was it for the death of your father or for... It was. Yeah, yeah. it was for, for Pop's death. And, and Matt Kenseth was actually, that's where he made his Cup debut running for Bill Elliott's race team there. Dan, I'd like to talk about Matt's legacy because Sunday, the way people were talking and things that I think have been hinted at through the year, if you read between the lines of what media members and other drivers are saying, it really feels like this is Matt Kenseth's last ride. It doesn't feel like he's a top candidate for any of the rides that have been open in the Cup Series. He is the most notable free agent driver and I even heard his former teammate in the booth on NBC, Jeff Burton, just talking like this was it for Matt Kenseth. His championship hopes ended. He was on the other side of the cut line. He got caught up in the 14-car wreck that it was uh, when Eric Jones spun there on a restart late at Kansas. And Kenseth got, had no chance to repair the car because during or right before the red flag, his crew sent seven people over the wall during the crash vehicle policy, and you can only send six over, and it was a mistake. And NASCAR sends people to the garage automatically for that, just like they did with Jimmy Johnson the week before at Talladega. So that meant that Kenseth is out of the championship. The highest he could finish is ninth in the point standings. And, Dan, I want to talk about the legacy of Matt Kenseth because you've been involved in racing, of course, during his whole career. You know, first of all, let's go back and talk about a little bit about the penalty because, you know, in this deal here, the penalty sure don't fit the crime on this stuff of eliminating you from a championship because you've got one person over the wall too many. Looks to me like, you know, they can they can dock you points. They can fine you if they find you not following the rules after the race is over. But this just seems like too much when you've got this much riding on your life, career, sponsors, the whole deal. And I just don't think this is right on, on how that was done, how it was handled, and the outcome of the whole thing. But let's go to Matt. You know, great driver, great career. Fate and destiny is going to tell more of the story to me than anything on where he goes and what he does because – you can sit there and say after an event like that or a situation like that that I may or may not run anymore, I may or may not do this or that, but until an opportunity comes along or presents itself, we none know what he's going to do or what he's got in mind. And definitely we haven't heard anything that he is talking about retiring or doing anything of the sort. So I'm going to give it a little bit of time and see because you still don't know another thing either, and that's if a driver gets hurt or anything happens, sure. who he could replace. Sure, and and even if other opportunities arise, what do you have open? If 
if Stuart Haas Racing, let's say, with Kurt Busch's ride is open, let's say that they don't, they're not looking at bringing Kurt Busch back, which I just don't feel like is the case personally, just based on how the sides are talking. I think they're waiting to see what Monster Energy does. But let's say Matt Kenseth gets to the 41. That's really the only elite ride available. You have to look then beyond it because the 10 is probably, a lot of people are saying it's going to be filled by Eric Almirola. The 27 team which is technically still a team. They haven't said they're not running next year. The rumor is that either Danica Patrick or Brennan Poole might bring sponsorship and keep the 27 alive at Childress Racing, but that has not been a front-running car, and I don't see in the near future that being a front-running car. And then you have Front Row Motorsports, which has said that Landon Castle's not coming back to the 34. They don't know if they're going to bring back David Reagan. That's a third-tier race team. And then second-tier team, you have Richard Petty Motorsports, which all indications are they want Bubba Wallace in the 43, but that's all about sponsorship. My point being, the 20 is Kenseth's best chance to win a championship, or the 41. He's not coming back to the 20. And it just seems like, Dan, that regardless of whatever happened and regardless of whatever he decides, this is his or was his last best or his best recent chance at a championship. Well, you know, it may appear that way, but until everything is said and done, I know that Matt could go into a car that might be a second or a third tier car and turn that deal around and make it a championship. And and I think Front Row Motorsports hinted at something that I because last week they were they got pressed at Talladega. Hey 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 hey, why did you let go of Landon Castle? That seemed like the perfect driver for the perfect team. And their uh, team general manager Jerry Freeze, I think it was him, not Bob Jenkins, one or the other. And forgive me for not quoting the right one, but paraphrasing, they said, "Look, our results have been about thirtieth place." And looking at the 34 team, they've and compared to Castle's results in the 38th, those results have regressed. They haven't gone forward, and we right. needed we we have something on the horizon that could be a potential big change. And to me, that means manufacturer change, possibly big driver, big sponsor. So that that kind of that that means that one of those big drivers out there, Danica Patrick, Kurt Busch, or Matt Kenseth, could be on the horizon, possibly for that team. And yep. we've seen what. If you catch a little lightning with one of those teams, whether it was Chris Buescher winning Pocono last year or David Reagan winning Talladega in the 34 car back in 2013, that that team could win if given the right set of circumstances. So to your point, Dan, I think certainly Kenseth has raised the level of a team. Remember when Kenseth got in the 20 car, they were running subpar with Joey Logano. Logano goes to the 22, that performance rises. Kenseth gets in the right situation in the 20, and he won seven races back in 2013. Yep, yep. It's just the right place at the right time. And I understand that everything has to line up, but it's not impossible. It becomes more improbable, but it does not become impossible. And I sure don't want to count Matt out because I know Matt and I know his level of competitiveness and what he brings to the table. And um, he sure could bring a lot to the table that a, what you would call a second rate, but even a second rate, many more look at what it has what it takes to be in this sport as far as the people involved in it and how little difference you have to make to be a front row contender or a front a race winning contender versus a versus somebody that just runs in the field it doesn't take much at all right i think any driver that's good enough to run weekly in the cup series is one of the best in the world let's be real absolutely (laughs) absolutely so and so the difference between kenseth and Ricky Stenhouse and AJ Allmendinger 
and one of the guys at the bat, let's say a Landon Castle, since we mentioned it before, is not all that much. It's the right combinations. But when you look at Ken's career, just to talk about his legacy, Dan, 38 race wins. Yep. He's finished in the top 10 more than a third of the time. In fact, more, more than almost, in fact, he's finished in the top 10 half the time, 323 of 646 starts. From when he began as a full-time driver in 2000 all the way until now, the only two races he has missed were when he got suspended for wrecking Joey Logano. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting, uh, dubious <coughs> statistic there. He's got two Daytona 500s. He's got two championships. And in the Xfinity Series, he has 29 race wins and finished very close to second and third behind Dale Earnhardt <coughs> Jr. in his championship winning seasons in 98 and 99. <coughs> And with all the uh, interloping that goes on with cup drivers in the other series, Kenseth has never run, not won, he has never run in a truck series race. How about that? You know, when you look at the statistics, especially two championships and two Daytonas, what a feat because you've got drivers that would kill for that. I mean, you know, you you put things in perspective. (laughs) Absolutely. And so let's look here at where Kenseth ranks on the all-time win list. I won't have the number exactly for you, but Kenseth has 38 race wins. Some drivers that are behind him, because since we did this with Junior last week, we'll do it with Kenseth this week. Bobby Isaac, who got into the Hall of Fame, 37 wins. Kevin Harvick has 36. Fireball Roberts, 33. Dale Jarrett, Hall of Famer, 32. Fireball Roberts is also. Denny Hamlin, 31. Carl Edwards, 29. And then you go back beyond that. Kurt Bush, or sorry, Carl Edwards and Carl, excuse me, Kurt Bush has 29, Carl Edwards 28. All of these drivers, or a lot of these I mentioned, Harvick, Hamlin, Bush, Edwards, were all in the same era. Dale Earnhardt Jr., 26 wins. All in the same era. We got to see them all race at the same time. That's pretty cool. You know, Doug, when we're, we talk about a lot of things, and, and I just want to throw this out there, is it fair to compare race wins when you change decades of drivers let's make that subject it, number two dan so i want you to answer right, that right. yes er, eras race wins how do we do that yep all right you know i think that you need to look at each decade differently because you look at the substantial changes obviously because nascar started and they were running what 60 races a year well at very first they were running only five to ten races a year in the very, very early days, the Red Byron days, but then yeah, yep. they got up to as much as sixty or seventy, right? Yeah, so each decade and Richard Petty was the one that, that kind of brought this to my attention of you you can't compare drivers because each decade is different and it is. You you've thrown so many variables into the mix and so many new drivers come along and things change. And you need to look at that whenever you look at the race wins and the drivers and stuff and not taking away anything from any of the drivers because 200 race wins for Petty, unbelievable. But can you even conceive anyone in modern day that could match it? Uh, no, because not unless you start counting Xfinity wins or truck wins, you know, and that's what they're doing yeah. with Kyle Busch. So in 1949, they ran eight races. I had this a little wrong. By 1950... It was 19, and then that's where you escalate, like you were talking about, Dan. 1951, the third year of the what was then called the Strictly Stock Series, 41 races. Then it goes 41, 34, 37, 37, 45. Then it really gets big. In 1956, they ran 56 races, 56, 53, 51. They ran in the 40s. And then when you get into the Richard Petty area, the, the uh, year of Richard Petty's first championship, 1964, 62 races won. 
and then Ned Jarrett won in 1965 when they run 55 races. And then by the time you get to the 1974 season is when they're running between 29 and 31 a year until our most modern era where you're running 36 a year. So that, that they, I mean, it's I can't even imagine that. And they're running sometimes back-to-back days or running, you know, obviously we're running more than once a week. What, what I mean, you've been on the road, Dan. What, what, how grueling would that be? as a team member to be going from one track to the other multiple times in the same week. And I guess maybe that was like your short track days too, right? Well, I, I feel like we sort of kind of did that anyway, because when they ran that many races a year and I had talked to Richard a little bit about that and you just went from one track to another, or if you went back home, you just tried to fix your car somewhere or if you had to go back home and do something there you were to race the next night next day and you know they don't they didn't do it like when we ran in the late 70s and then the 80s where maybe you showed up at talladega on wednesday or thursday and you were there the rest of the week it felt like you were on the road forever anyway it felt like you just came home and washed your clothes and came in the front door and went out the back door but it felt the same way when we got to talking about how it was then because they didn't stretch out the races like they do now and and certainly um the idea now of trying to move to two-day shows and and kind of compress the weekend which i think is supposed to cater to the fans also since people are really not attending this the friday and saturday races near as much i think that's also supposed to cater to the race teams too when you're talking about comparing eras dan just to throw my two cents in i, I think you have to because it's the same series and certainly the way baseball has been played over the years has changed and then you could talk about for instance i remember back in i think it was 2004 when ichiro suzuki of the Seattle Mariners in the Major League Baseball set the hits record for a season. People were saying, well, hey, what about when they played only 154 games a year instead of 162? Yeah, you're right, but this is the, the common template is this is our season now. We're not comparing other series. It's still the Cup Series, still the elite, dri- elite stock car drivers in the United States. But certainly I don't think anybody's going to get – let's put it this way. People that raced in Richards Petty's era never got close to him, so certainly people now – unless something dramatically happens, unless we get into an IndyCar situation where you have only 20 teams running and only five or six are competitive, which has been the case in IndyCar in the past, I think that's the only way you could ever pile up wins like that. Or if you had somebody that was a career Xfinity driver driving a Joe Gibbs team, <laughs> and they run won 10 races a season, right? Yeah, and you know, I, I, I like where the format is going a little bit on the two-day shows. It wouldn't matter to me if it was a one-day show because it, it gets a little bit more abbreviated. The fan could come up, come out and watch everything that goes on during a given day and practice qualifying and go through the whole thing and, and be there for the whole event if you wanted to be there instead of stretching this out. Because I'm sure they stretched it out where you would spend more money and hotels, motels love that. And, you know, it got to be where, just like for us at Daytona, five-day minimum a lot of times on rooms, uh, and, and it gets to where that you just cannot afford this unless you have deep pockets. I think that's exactly the case, yeah. The problem with, let's say you have multiple series and, and a one- or two-day show, is when you get into rainouts. You know, when you have a three-day weekend, you can move stuff earlier, run the Xfinity race after the cup race, or do things like that. It, it gives you less flexibility 
And when people get used yeah, to that one TV, TV is dictating so much of this deal yeah. as far as what you do. There's the problem. Yeah. Although, I will say in TV's defense, they are the biggest sponsor of our sport right now. So I agree that it's it's not all just about TV audience. We need to pay attention to the tracks more. But just like we talked about, I think, two weeks ago, TV, $8.2 billion over 10 years. There is no sponsor out there paying to any race team what TV is paying to the whole sport that goes to the race teams now. Now, is this good or bad, though? Well, exa- it's double-edged sword. People aren't going to the races or watching on TV. And, and if you're a track owner or promoter, this is not good for you whenever you're but tracks are getting 65% of the TV's not paying you TV for your money. races and you've got to compete against that or you just don't have the revenue coming in that they've got. And they make up for it by t- tracks getting way more than the teams do from the TV package. I think the That's number it. was 65% <laughs> from the Tommy Joe Martin's blog on jeffgluck.com anyway. The investigative work that he did with Bob Pockers and Jeff Gluck was that it was 65%. And you know, and what we discussed a couple weeks ago was were the tracks getting Who too big a show. tracks? Right, and NASCAR owns most of the track. So I think that's a big thing to discuss, right? And and on down the line, we'll have to. So, And looking at it, it's hard to compare eras, but that is the template we have. That's what makes Jimmy Johnson and Jeff Gordon's totals of wins really remarkable to me. Johnson with 83 career wins, and and then Jeff Gordon right ahead of, of Johnson with 93 wins. Jeff Gordon, despite running in an era where he's running only 29 to 36 races a year, Jeff Gordon is third most all-time in wins. David Pearson, he he has 93. David Pearson has 105. And then you have Petty's 200. So I don't think anybody's touching Richard Petty's. And by the way, if you go to Wikipedia's list of all-time NASCAR wins, it divides it up between the different eras of, they call it the strictly stock Grand National era, 1949 to 1970, the Winston Cup era, uh, era 71 to 2003, that is the playoffs era, of 2004 to the present, and they also divided up by what is called the modern era, which is 1972 up until the present. And so that's kind of cool to see where those wins fall. Richard Petty's wins, of course, came 119 of them. Dan came before 1971. That's yep. hard to believe. Exactly as well. right. That's hard, hard to believe. And then 60 came, or in the in what is called the modern era. So that that's that really uh, sums it up right there. Okay, I want to get to another subject, and that is. With this championship format, which you were on the record on the Five to Go podcast, Dan Elliott, saying that you were not a fan of, you liked the full body of work for a whole season, and one of those reasons is because uh, a good year's work goes out the window if you have a couple of bad races. NASCAR has tried to remedy this in this elimination format with the accumulation of, of playoff points over the year. And certainly Kyle Larson had a good many of those playoff points, but not, not a lot compared to Kyle Busch, who barely made it to this round of eight in the championship. And certainly no one has what Martin Truex Jr. has. He's having really a heavenly year. And so looking back over all eras and times you remember or even times you're a part of, Dan, when you look at a whole body of work, of Bill Elliott's best season in many eyes was 1985. But he Absolutely. Did not, and he Absolutely. did not win the because championship. Because you dominated as far as wins on a super speedway and poles, and you dominated everything that year except one thing. You didn't win the points. And so to you, when you look back at some of the heartbreaking stories, well, like Jeff Gordon, I think it was in 2007, where he had this great year but didn't win the championship, lost it in the chase to Jimmy Johnson. Kyle Larson isn't even going to have a chance at the, the championship four at Homestead because he got knocked out with an engine failure and a couple lackluster races here in, in round number uh, two of the chase. 
What what are some other all time ones that you know about, Dan? That you reflect on and say, man, if only this had happened, that guy should have been the champion. Well, you know, you look back and and really it comes down to the the cream rises to the top every year anyway, and you can change what you want to change as we did at Gresham, and it still ends up being the same people that the people that run good are going to continue to run good. There may be a, a few flukes along the way, but the, the people that run good, they're going to be there day in and day out. And you'll have a few drivers during the year that will surprise you that aren't the usual contenders for race win. But I think the one still that stands out to me is, is 85 for us yeah. because that is the one that um, you look back and you think, well, you know, the system the system was messed up and and you didn't win the championship but you got to look at what was thing is if we'd ran better on the short tracks we would have won a championship so it was our own fault because the points have to add up at the end of the year i think that's typical georgia sports by the way and i do consider any Georgia driver to me, and and those that follow me know I, I always love to cover the Georgia drivers, just like Captain Herb used to on his racing show. Georgia drivers to me are Atlanta or Georgia sports, and th- that's that's the score. That's the Braves or the Hawks or the Falcons or the Georgia Bulldogs or Tech or whoever. And Bill Elliott not only missing out on the '85 championship, but then because he didn't stay out to lead one more lap in '92. And I know this is back when he was on Junior Johnson's team and not on your team, Dan. But uh-huh. the, if Tim. Uh, uh, Tim Brewer had 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 Elliott stay out to lead one more lap. Cole Wicke would not have been the Underbird champion in '92. Yeah, <laughs> that's and to me that's so Atlanta. That is, cl- and it was Atlanta Motor Speedway. That is classic Georgia sports right there. Being up twenty-eight to three, Atlanta Falcons in the third quarter and losing to the Patriots in overtime. Classic. Yeah, but how many races <laughs> can you remember though, Doug? You know that they they've tried to change the point system, but I can. I don't remember many years that it came down to you came to Atlanta for the last race and somebody had already they had already clinched the championship. You always came to Atlanta and there were two or three drivers were always in the run in that it luck of the draw it could have been either way. Uh, absolutely. I think that uh I think that well that 92 race because, like yeah. you said, I mean that yeah. there was a technically four or five drivers. Yeah, Davy Allison got taken Davey out. Allison, yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. Davy Allison um, got taken out by Ernie Irvin. Kyle Petty had a mathematical shot at that championship. I think was it Ern- no, Earnhardt didn't. I think Mark Martin had a mathematical shot, and then of course she had Cole Wicke and Bill Elliott, and that was over a full season's work. And we've only and we've seen yep. this Dan recently up until uh, this is the second year of the elimination format of both the Xfinity and the Truck Series, but we've seen it. And those series come down almost to the last race at the very end of the year, where you know where it was actually competitive, and they didn't need any kind of championship shakeup. So, since we're talking about old championship formats, oh, before I do that, sorry, I want to mention one that I I think of as well. I think about oh goodness, what was it? Uh, I mean, like I said, Jeff Gordon in two thousand seven, Mark Martin in nineteen ninety. He had that illegal carburetor spacer or something that that he got penalized yeah, for. That was at Richmond, wasn't it? Where that was at? I believe so. Yeah. And so, and it was actually I think Earnhardt or someone that may have uh, kind of found out about it or ratted him out. It wasn't really a performance enhancing part, but it technically was illegal. It cost him the points, and at that point, Earnhardt won his. Uh, I think it was his fifth championship out of seven in nineteen ninety. So. 
that that was a heartbreaker as well. And of course, we've seen in this championship format, like Brad Keselowski in 2012 was not the best driver that season. But when it came down to he versus Jimmy Johnson, Johnson had a mechanical failure at Homestead in 2012, and Keselowski became a champion. Uh, Kurt Busch was not the best driver overall in 2004. That was arguably either Jeff Gordon or Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kurt Busch, and actually Jimmy Johnson had a really good year but had a terrible playoffs, but Kurt Busch was the most consistent driver in the playoffs, and he even survived having a wheel come off at Homestead and almost running into the pit wall, And but he was able to get onto pit road and get that tire changed, and he won that championship. And I'll, I'll want to name one more Dan Elliott, Carl Edwards in 2011, who had a super consistent season with not a lot of race wins. But when it came down to he versus Tony Stewart, that 14 team of Stewart's lit fire toward the end of the year. And I think won either four or five races in the chase when it was what it was called at the time. And then Tony Stewart was able to go one-on-one with Carl Edwards there, drive through the field, and beat him after Edwards started on the pole at Homestead, one of the greatest races of all time. Yep. So those are some other heartbreaks. All good events. Yeah, for sure. So whether it's the playoff format or not, we've seen some good championship rundowns. But I want to talk about something. This is right in your wheelhouse, Dano. And that's sort of the the decline of the sport in, in many demographics, so to speak. And maybe you could argue in all demographics. There's a blog out there called racefansforever.org. And this got shared on a couple of the NASCAR parody accounts and things out there on Twitter. I think Drunken Brian France was the account that shared this that I read it from. So let that materialize. You ought to read that account, Dano. You'd love that. But anyway, um, this is a guy named J.L. Steele who is just observing things as a race fan. And so this past Sunday, as we move on to our fourth subject here out of five on five to go, this Sunday he had this guy, J.L., had to go to a party. And this party, he knew that he was going to miss the cup race, but he wasn't too mad about it because it was Kansas. Mile and a half racing is not the most exciting racing in many fans' eyes. And so he goes to this party, and his wife says, hey, some guys will be watching the race on TV there. You won't miss all of it. And he was like, okay, whatever. He finds these acquaintances, six guys between the ages of 45 and 51. He sees them huddled around a TV set. They're not watching the NFL. They're watching racing. But they're watching the F1 race that is on at the exact same time as the cup race. The F1 race was on Big NBC. The cup race was on NBCSN. There's a problem right there. We'll get to that some other time. But they were watching that instead of F1. And this guy goes, hey, I thought y'all were NASCAR fans. What is the reason you're not watching this elimination playoff race at Kansas? And they listed a number of reasons. And pretty much the bottom line, these guys, again, were all middle-aged, 45 to 51 is that the sport, they just gave up on it. There were too many rules changes, and it just they got lost on all the championship changes and this and that, and braces being decided by rules instead of by the product on the track. And he also polled them and found out that the, each of them used to attend between one and four races per year. But the last that anybody in that group had attended the race, one guy went to the Bristol Spring Race in March of 2015, over two years ago, and he got free tickets because it was a rainout. So, Dan, this is something that I know sticks in your craw because you've been through the glory days of NASCAR. Now it's a time where the popularity is struggling. You've been a track operator at Gresham Motorsports Park. When you, when you read what you have voiced many times, how does that sit with you, and where is the sport you think missing a mark? It kind of makes me really sad because you're, you step back from this because you grow up in it and you're knee deep in it and you don't realize the changes going on around you until it gets really, really evident. And until I ran the track over there, 
kind of open your eyes as to really what kind of condition the sport's in and racing's not going to die it's not going to go away and I'm, I'm actually not cutting the sport you know i, I don't want to do that it's it's just and we talked about a little of this you know am, am i the one that's changing is racing progressing to the point that that it's leaving me is is what i used to know is racing so totally different today that i'm not interested anymore and it doesn't do for me what it once did but you look around at the grandstands you look at the events and you kind of notice from tv some of the racetracks are still packing in a lot of people but i know there's a, a decent crowd in kansas sunday seats, so you really can't tell and they won't publish attendance no nope. or race winnings or any of that stuff so you kind of got to guess by the crowd how many people are there how many people's going but NASCAR, obviously, they obviously know where they want to go with the sport. And we're talking about NASCAR only, but they know where they want to go with the sport. And obviously, they're content with that because they're not making any changes. And maybe there's something that we need to ask them and whether they tell us or not. But there's obviously something that they know that we don't. Well, so you say that um, they're not making any changes, but I think one of the contentions is that too many changes have been made, and they made changes over the years, starting in, really in 2001, but certainly when they debuted the chase format in 2004, that was a big change that turned a lot of people off. The Car of Tomorrow scenario that debuted in 2007 turned a lot of people off, and then since then, it seems like there's been more little tweaks here and there, and then this elimination format. Do you think any of these changes at all have helped spike excitement, helped slow the decline, or have they all accelerated it? Are there any that you think have been good changes that have been made in this kind of new era, the Jimmy Johnson era, if you will? I haven't seen any changes that I thought were really groundbreaking, and that's what I'm talking about is we keep going down this road, and yes, they keep making changes, but it seems to be in the wrong direction because instead of going back to the grassroots racing like we grew up with, and the racing that people loved, it keeps getting further and further away from it, and we're not making a U-turn or a right turn. We just keep making a left turn. So we keep going back to the same direction that we're going in. Yes, it's making changes. I understand that. But the changes that they're making, I don't know who's coming up with these ideas of what they're changing. Well, right now they have the Drivers' Council and they have the uh, the RTA, the team association that that is having influence over the NASCAR brass. It used to be there were unilateral changes made, and there was a complaint that NASCAR is making these changes and not consulting people in the sport. And now it seems that between TV's influence, which I think TV had a big influence in this elimination-style format, and then also what the drivers and teams are saying, they're coming up with different rules. I know that the lug nut rule has also come up out of criticism, whether your lug nuts are tied after a race and how much you get suspended or fined based on that. It, it just seems like every week there's a story about the rules. And as I saw a quote that some, uh, Dr. Jerry Punch, I think, said recently, it's a real shame, this is a paraphrase, it's a real shame that we keep talking about rules and penalties on Monday and Tuesday and not on the actual racing itself. You know, it's it's hard yeah, can, even to can remember. Can you imagine a driver going up to Big Bill France and telling him what he needed to do? But they used to go to Bill France Conversation's going to end. Didn't they? Didn't kind of? I, I, this may be a story that's been romanticized, but didn't the case used to be that you all could go up to Bill France Jr. in the seventies, eighties, nineties? 
find Bill France Jr. and just say, hey, I need to talk to you, and he would have conference with you right then. And then the Brian France era came where he was sort of a ghost at the racetrack, and you sort of dealt with the people under Brian France if you had a problem, if that. I mean, was, was that would, when you had a problem, let's say, Dan, or would you or Ernie or Bill find somebody with NASCAR? Could you actually get Brian France Jr.? Or uh, Bill France Jr., I mean? I think I know how that deal. Have you ever appealed your taxes? <laughs> I have not. I think that deal is going to end up about the same way the appeal process ends up. You <laughs> might find yourself on the short end of the stick. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that because you know they ran the sport like they saw it needed to be run. They made the changes, and how does the I know the driver fits into this deal, but the sad thing about it is, is you've got two, three, four or more drivers running for one owner. Well, sure. Yeah. So, so the owner pretty much dictates what goes on, whether the driver likes it or not, whether they say it or not, the owner pretty much dictates what the deal is. And they're the ones that's going to go to NASCAR and say, we as owners need this. Yeah, and I think when and he, what is the adage? I remember Mark Gar- the first time I ever heard this saying. Mark Garrow said it when they were talking about the racing at Bristol, and there were all the changes they were trying to make to the surface of Bristol several years ago, and continue to make. If the drivers like it, that probably means it stinks for the fans. That's not always the case, but it certainly is the case. Drivers say, yeah, we'd like to go out there and race and get side-by-side, but a lot of times that means without contact and without controversy, and I think the number one thing that fans like, they say it's hard racing, but what people like is conflict, rubbing his race and controversy, and how Bristol got messed up was that it wasn't a one-lane racetrack anymore on the bottom. (laughs) They either ran one lane at the top or they ran side-by-side, and even though from a purist standpoint, racing side-by-side to Bristol was maybe the best thing that could have happened to it, fans didn't like it because nobody was wrecking. They could go and pass the person, and that's what the drivers love. So if we're saying that the drivers have more influence over NASCAR's strategy than they used to, that could be at odds with what actually makes the fans want to like it. Yeah, and that's where you need to poll the fans, but you're getting to the point anymore of you're you're throwing this deal out there to where let's just open it up to Facebook and all the other social media and see how many suggestions you get and how who's going to determine what you do. And I think it's going to be another somewhere or another somebody has to say buck stops here. This is what we're going to do. And if this don't work, then it'll be changed to something else. I may say something that could even get me in trouble here, but I think a lot of people feel like Brian France ain't the guy. <laughs> and, and and he's someone that runs it on a macro level. He's got your your next level down, which is, I guess, chairman, as I believe is the term you put for Mike Helton, and then the people right below him that make a lot of decisions and are the people, you know, Brett Jukes, and people that are, that are on the, the surface right there. I, I say Brett. I may have. I think I said the wrong name there. But anyway, you, you get what I'm saying. Well, you've got that, a board, you've directors got, you've board of directors. You, and, you don't have a single person that runs NASCAR. You have a board of directors. I wonder and who the board the, of directors have to sit down and look at what the best, the most optimum thing to do, and and the best way to get there, and and they're doing this as a whole. Yeah, and I and I'm, I misspoke when I said Brett Jukes earlier. By the way, he's with the Falcons now. So, uh, but, but exactly, and so you know, they get, this gets me to one, and let's make this one 
Uh, let's just, I'm calling audible here. Let's, let's make this our next subject then, or I guess an extension of this one. Now we'll save the last subject for something totally different, but. Well, let's just say, let's just say the politics of racing has ruined racing because it's, it's like the politics of the country it's ruining the country. Well, let's, let's go back and say the politics of racing is ruining racing. Well, right, right. And so I'm thinking if people don't like how Brian France and maybe some of the people up top are doing things, wouldn't a Dale Earnhardt Jr. be a great president of NASCAR? To not maybe yeah, but the not problem the, is, is you still got a board of directors and, and the board is obviously not going to do anything without everyone conferring and coming to a pretty much same conclusion or a majority anyway. It, it, it brings it, it really unearths a lot of things, but I think the point of the article that spawned this discussion here, subject number four on five to go, is that people in your age group, Dan, are not into what's going on in NASCAR now. They think there's too many rules changes, too complicated to understand. The sport is too refined, and then the reason that this isn't there isn't a groundswell of a younger age of fans coming in is because they're not sharing the race day experience with their kids because the parents themselves or grandparents themselves are not into the sport also and racing largely is a traditional sport a family sport passed down through the generations and these guys that talked to the gentleman at the party who wrote the blog post Dead. They weren't going to races anymore, so thus their kids were not into racing, and that might be the biggest problem. And Dan, you talked overall about why racing as a whole is struggling, and we've talked about competition from other entertainment. Well, when you're in the, you're still in the performance end of racing business itself, Dan. Do, do you see other factors? Do you see a trickle down theory from why NASCAR is struggling to why when you struggled at Gresham it was struggling, or why the business you're in now could be struggling? You know, I think it's just a, it's it's not one thing. It is a whole variety of things that is going on. And obviously to me, number one is economy, because if, if money isn't out there, then you look at what you can and can't do and what you decide to do or how important it is to do it. But obviously the economy has got to get better and, you know, even the deal, you didn't think much about the cash for clunkers affecting racing very much. But think about this. Most everybody that ran on the local level, and I had several people say this when we were at Gresham, hmm. was that there, because of cash for clunkers, it took a lot of junk off the road. Well, it took a lot of junk out of the junkyards, too, that you could have used in the classes that were running at that time under classes that people have got could have gotten into for relatively sure. a small amount of money like because your all of those cars and, yeah. had to be destroyed Great stocks yeah the 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 old used cars that got made into race cars not the high performance yeah, late yeah. models and you, and you don't think about that effect in racing but even that did. you have so many other factors that play into this that you know you have a series that runs the mini stocks and they are a rear wheel drive four-cylinder class Okay, who makes a a who makes a rear wheel drive four cylinder car anymore? I don't know <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this seems like yeah, rear wheel so, drive is so high performance. So all of that stuff yeah. goes away, and and it's just a progression of things that are happening, and you can't change it, and you're trying to keep up with all the changes. Well, today, that that's wow. Yeah, that there's a lot to unpack. 
in, in that subject alone, and by the way, for those yep. that forget, the Cash for Clunkers program was from 2009, early in the Obama administration, as a way to try to spark the economy and spark the auto industry. Okay, one yep. more for you, Dan Owen. We don't have to spend a ton of time on this if you don't want, but I think it is, as much as there is to be down on the sport about, we, we talk a lot about the Cup Series drivers, the young guys that are coming to prominence. Next year, Alex Bowman and William Byron are going to be assuming full-time rides with Hendrick Motorsports and be a really robust rookie class there. This year we had a great rookie class with Eric Jones, Daniel Suarez, and Ty Dillon. We've seen Chase Elliott and Ryan Blaney. Oh, oh, oh and last year, by the way, uh, we had Chase Elliott and Ryan Blaney be the 2016 rookie class. And we talk a lot about those guys, Kyle Larson being part of the young guard as well. But we sort of forget some of the other names, either ones that are younger than them or just haven't quite made it yet, whether it's John Hunter Nemechek in trucks, who's been solid. Whether it's been, and, and he just, by the way, survived to make the next round of the trucks playoffs, and they'll race on Saturday at Martinsville. We also got to look into the Xfinity series where Christopher Bell is about to move to next season, and he's the odds on favorite to win the trucks championship. Tyler Reddick will be full time in the Xfinity series next year, and he's been a contender in trucks in the past. And we mentioned Alex Bowman. Reddick, Bowman, and Bell, in that order, have won three of the last four Xfinity races and are first-time Xfinity Series winners. And that's all just in this last month. So, Dan, I just wanted to ask you about those guys, Reddick, Bowman, Bell, what you think about them from what you've observed, and and just what you think about maybe the ne- – we're already talking about the crew that's young in the Cup Series now, but about the next crew that's trying to bubble on up. You know, that's definitely the cream of the crop because you you look at coming up through the ranks and obviously we know from some other drivers that have skipped a few of these classes and and come into cup, uh, obviously when you have the wherewithal, whether it be talent, sponsors, both, that that you can move on up quicker. But these kids have shown a lot of ability and obviously, when it comes to the next phase of drivers coming into NASCAR, these are you're going to be your hard hitters. It's going to be your stars of the future next couple of years. The biggest win of the Xfinity Series, and I mean by largest margin, uh, season was when I was at Kentucky with PRN crew, and I, I got to be in the booth with Doug Rice. Tyler Reddick won by some 13, 14 seconds over his teammate Brendan Poole. Or Brendan Poole's up there anyway. I think he finished second. And then you had Alex Bowman go out there and, and do some damage, of course, uh, when he won his race just a couple weeks ago. And then you had this past week, Christopher Bell was racing his teammate. Neither he or his teammate Eric Jones were running for the championship. And Bell starts gaining time on Jones, dives under his teammate Eric Jones, washes up the racetrack, and and pretty much he 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 does like a what what Eric Jones should have done is do a crossover to get around him, but Jones slide or a Bell excuse me slides all the way up the racetrack in front of Jones, almost comes to a dead stop or a compar- comparable dead stop, and then they and then pretty much Jones wrecks out, and that's how Bell won the race there with three laps to go this past weekend at Kansas Speedway. It seems to me that all three of those drivers you know, have the you know, Doug, I've go got ahead. an idea that could probably get make us a lot of money. Uh-oh. Maybe the next reality show needs to be where you bring a camera into the team meetings <laughs> and and you start filming some of the team meetings because that's one of the things that we've heard very little about is what goes on in the team meetings. We've heard a little bit of the stuff, but we haven't really been introduced to the team meetings and what does go on. 
I would love for somebody to take a hidden camera into those team meetings and let us see a little bit of what goes on in those things. There's been very little shared out of those, and I think that would be a great way to 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 unearth the the, or, yeah unearth a, a pretty much virgin part of the sport and that's knowing what goes on of course there's a lot of sensitive information not just conflict but sensitive information shared and I think that's one of the X factors when you look at Hendrick Motorsports next year uh, I want to say Bowman's win to me significant because it was his first ever win in any NASCAR series and he'd already had the job in the 88 locked up for next year and so that kind of proves that he belongs there in one of his rare races on the track and then of course with Bell and Reddick they they have dirt car experience obvious talent there and, and Bowman comes with the dirt car ranks but look next year you have Bowman and Byron replacing Earnhardt Jr. and Kane not just on the racetrack but behind the scenes at Hendrick Motorsports when engineers and team leaders and crew chiefs listen to what they're saying and determine how to build their race cars and we noticed an obvious change at Roush Fenway Racing when Edwards left when the two drivers supporting Greg Biffle were Ricky Stenhouse and Trevor Bain only and there was no Carl Edwards to yin the yang and I wonder what it's going to be like for Hendrick, which has struggled with performance this year, to have two at the same time rookie drivers next year. You know, I feel like with, with the fact that you've got so few owners owning the sport anyway, you've got, um, you know, up until probably, up until Cal and Gibbs got on their hot streak, Hendrick was probably a superpower Yes. Well, there ain't no probably to it. it. It was a superpower, and there was nobody else that could compete with it. And for whatever reason, for whatever happened this year, seems like they have lost a little bit of that edge that they've had, obviously. But, you know, you, you just can't count that group out. No matter what happens, you just can't count them out. But really, when it comes down to it, you've got so few owners that – of of the owners, you've only got two or three that are really super contenders this year, and the rest are right there hot on their heels. And it's not just owners, but I think there's it seems to be an obvious manufacturer advantage too with Toyota and we've talked a little bit about that in previous weeks on five to go but it seems like Toyota whether it's because of the Gibbs affiliation or not just they're able to outrun now we say I mean Toyota teams powered with Toyota power which the only ones of the cup series are Gibbs and with and uh, furniture row racing is bk racing and premium motorsports are not having the same Toyota support that the top teams are but it's hard to see if Hendrick Motorsports' downfall this year or the, the turn back a little bit about of, of Penske, Richard Childers Racing, Roush Fenway, if it's if it's just comparable because Gibbs and them got so far ahead or if the other teams lost performance also. It's hard to measure that, just like it's hard to measure eras between teams. But I do got to give I do want to give props again as we finish up our fifth subject of five here and five to go to Tyler Reddick for lately just coming out of the box and proving that he belongs in a full-time Xfinity ride, which he will have with Junior Motorsports next year. He's with Ganassi now. Alex Bowman, by getting that win at Charlotte, finally shows, hey, I really do belong in NASCAR on a very limited schedule this year. He'll be full-time at Cup. And then Christopher Bell being the true future seems like a real hot shoe seems to be right in the, the footsteps of Eric Jones and Chase Elliott with his dirt experience. He's dominating trucks and now He's, he, he made just a wise beyond his years, a gutsy move to beat his teammate there. And I'm sure, like you said, Dan, that caused some uh, friction behind the scenes of Joe Gibbs Racing. Anything else you want to get off your chest before we head into the sunset and take a checkered flag? No, I think we're good to go. I think the fans are probably sick enough by now, so we'll let them <laughs> have a break. 
Well, we'll we'll try. We'll try. We got so just a reminder here. Coming up uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, if you're hearing this today, or coming up today, if you're hearing it a Wednesday, or if you're hearing it Thursday, coming up yesterday. Ha! Uh, but Eric Von Hessler's team, Von Hessler Doctrine, they'll be out at the 57th Fighter Group at DeKalb County or Claremont Road here in Georgia for their third leg of their autumn breakfast tour. There, that'll be from nine to noon on uh, the middle day of this week. We also have, uh, you can hear his show in full either on iTunes as a whole podcast or on WSB Radio and the WSB Radio app, which you can get the app anywhere. You don't just have to be in Atlanta. And uh, Dan, I know you're dealing with stuff over there, but the number one thing you're dealing with this weekend, the Dawsonville Moonshine Festival this weekend. Y'all look that up and go find Dan and his cars. And if I can get the family together, I'll try to head up to Dawsonville myself. And you can find all of WSB's traffic Info, if you will, at home on wsbradio.com slash traffic. And be sure to listen to us around the clock. we got airborne updates during morning and p.m. drive Monday through Friday. And download our new Triple Team Traffic Alerts app. Dan, it's the only traffic app in the nation that has people actually fueling the info that talks to you with our audio reports as you drive. You might need to get that yourself, buddy. Pretty sweet. But um, I know that the traffic in Dawsonville this weekend is going to be terrible. So I plan to park and sit and watch it. And we, well, that sounds fun. Well, yeah, park and sit and not get stuck in to, it. Do I need to send you a drone report from my drone? Hey, please do. Please send me a drone report. I'll share it. I can do that. I'll, I'll share it on uh, social media, okay? Social media. Sounds you need to like get into deal. that. You need to get into that. And, folks, you can find this podcast uh, wherever you're hearing it from now. Remember, you can find it on the podcast page, wsbradio.com. Just look for 5 to go. I think it says 5 to go NASCAR podcast there. Go uh, GoPRN.com should have a link up as well. And we and when I share it on my social media channels. Also, go and like our Facebook page. 5 to go uh, now has its own Facebook page. So like that. That gets our info more out there. And we put each new episode on that. We thank you all for joining us. Wish Eric Von Hessler well. He's under the weather. That's why you didn't hear him this week. He should be back next week. Dano, I appreciate you dropping in. Yep. Thank you, Doug. And uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Von Hessler, I hope he gets to feeling better. Hey, we certainly hope that. Well, Dan, ho, ho, hope your work goes well up in Dawsonville and hope you have a great weekend, folks. Thanks for tuning in to the Five to Go podcast. Y'all have a great week.